all but geared toward adult first-time readers of Harry Potter, who need a space to enjoy each book and have adult conversations about it. My name is Sarah, and I'm honored that you've allowed me on this journey with you. Crack open a butterbeer, grab a seat, and let's discuss. Today, we're talking about Draco, Percy, and Rita Skeeter. Welcome, everybody, to episode 32 of First Years. Today, we're going over chapters 10 and 11 of Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. But before we dive into that, we have some house points news. Um, Hufflepuff's kind of killing it. I know that doesn't surprise anybody, (laughs) but after adding up the most recent house points opportunities, Hufflepuff is sitting at almost a thousand points. They're at 970 points and Slytherin is really far behind them at 445. Gryffindor comes behind them at 355 and Ravenclaw has 155. So if anybody wants a chance to win the house cup against Hufflepuff this year, you guys need to get it together because you have a lot to make up for. Hufflepuff always, always turns out, especially for trivia on Wednesdays. Um, I give you points for participating as well as points for getting the correct answer. So if you want to earn house points for your house, even if you get the answers wrong, you can just participate and you'll, you'll earn house points. But Hufflepuff, you're killing it. Way to go. So we have a bunch of things to talk about. We're going to talk about a bunch of different characters. But let's start with essentially where this chapter starts with Mrs. Weasley. So she is so upset because she and the twins left on such a bad note. And then there was mayhem at the World Cup. And she worries, like, what if something had happened to them and they had left off on this bad note? And I feel like, A, that's a completely normal thing to worry about. Second, I feel like it gives us insight into what it was like when Voldemort was at large originally. Because we talked about how the Wizarding World was so panicked because it brought back this trauma from when people would arrive home and find the dark mark above their houses. So how many people left on bad terms with their families and then came back to find that hanging over their house? It's horrible to think about But I think Molly Weasley knows what that was like, and we saw how people reacted to the Death Eaters at the Quidditch World Cup, and now we're getting, like, the outside perspective, where I'm sure similar articles were published when Voldemort was at large originally. So I think it gives us a good insight into how tense things were and how scary things were and how literally anything could happen at any moment when Voldemort was at large the first time. Now, I want to transition from that into other issues. Speaking of the Daily Prophet, um, we're going to talk about Percy and we're going to talk about Rita Skeeter here, okay? Um, Because the person who causes the real trouble in this chapter 
is Rita Skeeter. Um, we get introduced to her here. She's a writer and she's kind of already causing trouble. Um, she's spreading possibly false information around that there were bodies in the woods and twisting Arthur Weasley's words around. So then he has to go into the ministry to clean up the mess, even though he was just stating what they knew at the time and it really shouldn't have been such a mess for him. And we also find out that she just, she never makes anybody look good. It's kind of how she operates. And we know in our world today, the consequences of having that kind of journalism that's opinionated like that with an ulterior motive. So what do we think will occur in regards to that? And now we find out that she's going to cause more trouble because she's found out that Bertha Jorkins has been missing. And I'm with Arthur on this one because they probably should have been looking for her the entire time. Like I said before, would you want to work for somebody who doesn't really care if you go missing or not? I probably wouldn't. So Arthur Weasley has to go into work um, and he starts working weekends and Mrs. Weasley says that her husband hasn't had to work weekends since you-know-who was at large. Another thing that is emulating the past in regards to you-know-who. Percy, on the other hand, has been, quote, putting out fires all week. And this line jumped out at me because we initially take that to mean that he's been putting out rumors and trying to get the narrative under control of what happened. But then he says that people have been sending howlers, which explode if you don't open them. So is this kind of like what we've been seeing with Percy all along, where he makes his job seem a little bit more important than it actually is? Or maybe maybe that's the wrong way to put it. Like maybe that what he does day to day isn't quite as important as he makes it out to be. Are we taking this literally or figuratively? Is Percy actively helping everyone at the ministry or is he just literally putting out fires from people's complaints? <laughs> and there's also some tension here because Percy says that his dad should not have commented and said anything. And Immediately, there's backlash because Mrs. Weasley obviously is going to stick up for her husband, and Bill points out that it's it's really not their dad's fault. Rita Skeeter would have made the ministry look bad regardless of if he had said anything or if he hadn't said anything, because that's what Rita Skeeter does. And this leads into a conversation because there's talking about how it's lucky that Rita Skeeter hasn't found out that Winky, Mr. Crouch's house elf, is the one that was found with the wand that conjured the dark mark because she would have had a field day with it. So Percy jumps in and he's defending Mr. Crouch. and He's like, well, I thought we all agreed that she didn't conjure the dark mark, which I agree with. And then Hermione jumps in saying that it's lucky that they don't know how terrible Mr. Crouch is to his house elf. And Percy says, quote, a high-ranking ministry official like Mr. Crouch deserves unswerving obedience from his servants. I find this concerning on so many levels because, yes, 
in the wizarding world, house elves are meant to follow the directions of their owners. We see how difficult it was for Winky to go against the direct orders that Mr. Crouch had set for her. It was like she was moving against a force field as she was like walking through the woods. And Hermione is right that Winky should not have been put in the positions that she was, where she had to be afraid while she saves a seat for her master that didn't even show up to the game, and then also having to stay put while Death Eaters were roaming around the campground. But on top of that, I feel like Percy doesn't mean just house elves. I feel like he means everyone that works under Crouch. Because we've seen how Percy treats him, and he treats- he kind of works like a servant for him. Like when he's offering him tea, and you know, he doesn't stop talking about him, and he puts him on a pedestal. So I think Percy includes himself in that, because he is absolutely loyal to Crouch, and I don't think anyone in the ministry or in government in general deserves unswerving obedience or unswerving loyalty. Because then you get into a dangerous territory about not pushing back when things aren't right, and I I think we're getting some insight into how Percy operates and how Percy perceives the government in the wizarding world here, and I just, I find it very concerning. So also in these chapters, Harry is waiting on a letter from Sirius. He hasn't heard back from him, and if we think about it, things right away in this book seem to be connected with Voldemort. The first chapter starts off with Voldemort and Wormtail. The second chapter has Harry's scar hurting after he dreams about the events in chapter one. Then Death Eaters show up at the World Cup and Voldemort's sign goes up in the sky. So things are really starting to amp up here. Why do we think that is? And what do you think it means? Because just as a reminder, to put it into context, we're in the middle of the series right now. And like I've said before, with each book, things get darker and we deal with more intense themes as Harry grows up. So what do you think this book holds in the greater scheme of the series if we look through that lens and look at it as literally like the center of the series? What do you think this book is going to hold for us? So then we're getting ready to go to Hogwarts. And we get a little bit more information about what might be going on at Hogwarts this year. We find out that dress robes are required for this year, and Ron discovers his pair while they're packing, and, well, they're not great. And we really see here the the inequality of the situation between Harry and Ron, and I think this isn't something that we think about often because they both seem to come from not a lot. You know, because the Dursleys certainly didn't give Harry any special treatment. And Harry wore hand-me-downs for the majority of his life and spent most of his life living out of a cupboard under the stairs. And 
we can see how Ron, in some ways, has privilege, um, but not financial privilege. And when we look at it, Ron also doesn't really have a lot. Like, his privilege comes from the fact that he is a pureblood and sort of already knows how the wizarding world works, and that's why he can sort of overlook the house elf situation, right? Because it's just part of the world that he grew up in. You know, the the advantages that he had over Harry are a family who loves him and plenty of food all the time. Um, but when we look at their finances, the real inequality between them is that Harry's parents were wealthy and he has access to money that, that they left him while the Weasleys don't have a lot of money and everything gets spread out over all of their children. And so Ron ends up with dress robes from a secondhand shop because that's what the Weasleys can afford. And Harry ends up with a good pair because his money afforded him the opportunity to buy something brand new. And I feel for Ron here because he says, why is everything I own rubbish? You know, we saw this when Harry first came to the Weasleys house in book two, where Ron was worried to show Harry his bedroom and everything because he was worried that Harry would think it was pathetic or something. But Harry isn't like that. Harry knows what it's like to not have a lot. And also, money doesn't really matter to him. I think, I think he's thankful for what he has because he can afford to spend 30 galleons on three pairs of omnioculars for his friends and dress robes that suit him. And it's this really sort of like awkward moment at the end of this chapter where Harry feels bad because he gladly would have given the Weasleys half of his money, but really they'd probably never accept it. But I think it also highlights a lot about their friendship and their priorities and what's important to both of them because they can also connect on not having a lot or having a lot in different ways. And certainly, we can juxtapose that about why Harry is absolutely not friends with Draco Malfoy. Because Draco just can't pass up an opportunity to pick on our main characters. You, you know, Harry and Draco didn't like each other. Well, Harry didn't like Draco from the word go. But we see here in, in these chapters that Draco has to insert himself into the conversation about the Quidditch World Cup when they're really just talking about it with their friends. And in this moment, we also learn that um, whatever is going on at Hogwarts this year is something that you have to enter, and there's money and glory involved. And when they really don't know what he's talking about, he's incredulous that they don't know about it already. He says, quote, You've got a father and brother at the ministry and you don't even know? My god, my father told me about it ages ago. Heard it from Cornelius Fudge. But then father's always associated with the top people at the ministry. Maybe your father is too junior to know about it. Yes, they probably don't talk about important stuff in front of him. Unquote which is such a jerk move because we know 
that Ron's family does know what's going on. <laughs> we get more hints through Mrs. Weasley and Bill and Charlie. Why is it a status symbol to know about it beforehand? Because it's supposed to be a surprise. Some families just want to keep it a surprise, Draco, because they want to make it fun for their kids to not know so that it'll be really exciting when they find out when they get to Hogwarts. Like, this seems to me like Draco is the first kid to know that Santa Claus isn't real and is just going around telling everybody about it and just like ruining it for everybody else just because he can because he feels superior, because he knows that Santa Claus isn't real. Like, that doesn't make you cool. It makes you a jerk. And we're in year four here, okay? So everyone's, like, 14. So they'd be freshmen in high school, and I know a lot of drama circulates in friend groups in high school, but this is, like, child stuff. Like, you would think that he could let it go for four seconds and just grow up just a little bit by this point. Because Draco feels the need to impress this superiority that he thinks he has all the time on other people. Like, it's one thing to act like you're superior, and it's another thing to just constantly shove it in people's faces. Because you know what that says to me? That he's insecure about his own position. Because Draco has everything. He's from a rich family. His parents are well-connected. He seems to be in a position of power in his own house. He's a pureblood. So why does he act like this? Because I think we all know that someone can have everything on the outside and still not be happy. And this isn't me excusing Draco's behavior. I just think it's interesting to dive into what might be motivating him to act the way he does because he's not just a bully because he's a bully, right? As a character, there has to be an underlying motivation for why he acts the way that he does. Since he comes from a family that preaches that they're better than others, something tells me that Draco says that so he can feel that way because he doesn't feel that way naturally. There has to be something he's making up for. Something he feels insecure about. It can probably be from the fact that Hermione is better, at him, better than him at magic, because let's be real, she's better than everyone. Same goes for Harry not wanting to be his friend in book one, because Harry isn't a bully. He's been the victim of them his whole life, and so he didn't want anything to do with Draco Malfoy from the word go. From that first moment when they're getting their school robes, Harry's like, I'm not sure I like this kid. Then Draco finds out who Harry is, wants to be his friend, and Harry's like, nope, no thanks. Mm -mm. And so maybe Draco hasn't gotten over that. After all, we haven't really seen him with friends. It's more like followers. You can't tell me that Draco has fun Friday nights playing chess or board games with Crab and Goyle. Like, if they do, they probably let him win instead of it just being like a fun friend hangout. So, perhaps that's the kind of void 
that leads Draco to insert himself whenever he can and to make other people feel lower than he feels himself. What do you think? Because when we look deeper into bullying, evidence points to that someone usually who bullies is lacking attention from a parent at home and lashes out. The same can happen if an adult role model is also a bully, which we absolutely see in both Draco's father and in Snape, who is Draco's head of house. Some other reasons that are given for somebody who bullies is that it makes them feel stronger, better than somebody else, that they're bullied at home, or they're jealous of another person. So do we think Draco is jealous of Harry? Since everything seems to revolve around Harry, he's famous for something he barely remembers doing, and he has been involved in the drama at school for the last three books. He was the hero of books one and two, and was in the middle of the whole situation of book three. So do you think that's it? Or is it something at home? Or do you think I'm completely overanalyzing Draco and he's just a jerk because he's a jerk? I want to know your thoughts. In this same train ride, we find out more information about other wizarding schools. So our perception of the wizarding world has expanded since the World Cup. We got to see wizards from all over, and that was really our first glimpse into a world that isn't just Hogwarts. Like, Hogwarts isn't the center of the wizarding universe. It's just a part of something much bigger. And so we first hear Draco talking about how his parents almost sent him to Durmstrang, but that his mother decided that it was too far away. It's more pureblood friendly and doesn't let muggle-borns into the school like Dumbledore does. And also, it doesn't just teach defense against the dark arts. It actually teaches the dark arts. Hermione expands on this knowledge that Durmstrang and Beaubaton are other wizarding schools, and they're all rivals. Durmstrang has a really bad reputation. And they all stay hidden from each other so that they can guard their secrets. And not to get back on my soapbox about muggles again, but we find out that Hogwarts is also hidden from muggles. They'll see a sign that says danger and do not enter unsafe. So I know that parents don't normally come to visit Hogwarts, but this ensures that they literally can never come to the school that their children go to. Another exclusion that doesn't seem very fair. We also find out that magic can make things unplottable. So things can't be plotted on a map and therefore can't be found, which is really interesting to me. Another expansion of our wizarding world universe, if you will, is hearing about Mad-Eye Moody. So this happens in the second chapter that we're going over today. Amos Diggory comes to the burrow. Well, he doesn't come to the burrow. He uses flu powder to just partially come into their home and arrive in their fireplace. And he's there urgently because there has been a situation with Mad-Eye Moody that they want to make sure that Rita Skeeter cannot find out about 
and they want to get him off on a lesser charge because he already has a record. It sounds like there was an intruder at his home and his dustbins went off, but they don't really believe there was an intruder. More probably that it was a cat or something that Moody reacted to. And it seems like people think he's crazy, even though Arthur Weasley thinks very highly of him. And we find out that he was great in his time, he's friends with Dumbledore, he's retired from the ministry, and he was an Auror, who was somebody that catches dark wizards. And he was really good at his job. If half the cells in Azkaban are full because of Moody, I think that points to the fact that he was a probably he was probably a pretty good Auror. But now he has a lot of enemies. And so he's paranoid. So they don't think somebody actually showed up. And I'm sure that being paranoid and making enemies isn't surprising in his line of work. Especially since we've learned how bad things were 13 to 14 years ago. He was probably always on edge. Especially since we know a lot of the Death Eaters claimed they weren't Death Eaters in order to not be imprisoned. So this is a new character that gets a lot of screen time, if you will, in these chapters. So why do you think, though, that it's so important for Arthur Weasley to help Mad-Eye Moody get off on a lesser charge? What's at stake here? Why is Moody important enough that they feel like they have to do this? Let us know all of your thoughts about these all these characters at firstyearspodcast at gmail.com or you can tag us on Twitter or Instagram at firstyearspod. If you want to earn house points, tune into our trivia every Wednesday. We have Mindful Magic Monday prompts every Monday on Instagram. Also rating and reviewing this podcast and leaving your name in Hogwarts house, you will earn double house points as well as a shout out on here. For next episode, you need to read chapters 12 and 13, and I will see you guys next time. Sarah